0: Ford Canine LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford Canine is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like Canine Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford Canine also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scents City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Today, I am getting to sit down here with a new friend of mine from Holland. Uh, She recently came here to Silver State Canine to bring us some new dogs that she had been working with in training. Natalie, who is the guest, and I won't try to pronounce her last name, I'll let her do it when uh, I have her do her background here in a second. Um, has a really unique background that I wanted to interview her for on the podcast so that others like yourself as a listener can take this information from her about education and the type of education that currently goes on in Europe when it comes to uh, becoming a dog trainer or getting involved in the animal training uh, uh, career fields. So with that, Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you for you know, flying here from Holland to deliver us these new dogs. Um, it's been fun today uh, watching you work these dogs. But welcome to Las Vegas and welcome to Silver State Canine. Hi, hi. So uh, go ahead and, and give everybody your name and say it how you, uh, <laughs> how you say it and where you currently work.
2: Um, so I'm Natalie van Helmond. Um, I live in Belgium. I grew up in Belgium, but I work in the Netherlands. So I work for the Dutch company Sentimprint for Dogs, um, so I work with Wesley Fisher mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, at Scent Imprint for Dogs, we trained the dogs that I, uh, brought here to Silver State.
1: Okay. And, and Scent Imprint for Dogs specializes in detection dogs. Uh, we've had a fun conversation about the evolution of detection dogs and the things that dogs are trained to detect. Tell some of the listeners one of the unique things that you guys train dogs for now that brings you to places like Indonesia and Africa. Um, give a little background about the conservation detection stuff that you guys do.
2: Okay. Um, so actually with the print for Dogs, we do um, explosive dogs and uh, narcotic dogs. Um, and then with the second company, um, Print Conservation Dogs, um, yeah, we work in conservation. So we have projects in Indonesia, but also in Africa. And um, we have tracking dogs, but also detection dogs. So they can um, detect and uh, follow the tracks of the poachers, or they can uh, find smuggled
1: wildlife. Okay. What are some of the odors in the conservation aspect that the dogs are trained to detect? Like, I know I've seen like turtle shells. Uh, what are some of the main ones that are popular that you guys train the dogs to detect?
2: Um, pangolin scale, it's uh, the most trafficked animal in the world.
1: Okay. Uh, say that again. What was it? Pangolin. Okay. What, what kind is that?
2: Um, I don't know how you say it in is
1: English. It, is it like, it's got the it's, shell to yeah. it? Okay, yeah. Okay. We call it turtle. Okay. No, okay. it's
2: not. It's another animal that's got a shell yeah. to it. Okay. Yeah.
1: Gotcha. All right. And
2: what um, else? Um, tiger, okay. like tiger skin, tiger bones, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in Indonesia, they, uh, smuggle a lot of primates. So a lot of different primates, um, a lot of birds, Mm -hmm. they call it singing birds or um, hornbill. Um, So sometimes everything you can think of, they uh, smuggle it.
1: Okay. How do you deal with, I mean, uh, like those of us that do bomb dogs, there's a lot of odors that we train the dogs to and maintain. And then a lot of those odors can be mixed with other chemicals, so that ends up being a lot, even though you're training on one, that one odor covers a lot of different types of variables or variants. Um, Is that the same for for wildlife? So if you train on bones of, let's say, the tiger, would it also apply to bones of another primate or or another type of animal?
2: Um, Yes. Of course, after a while, like you say, with uh, the bomb dogs, um, they have to... um,
1: Generalize? Generalize, yeah.
2: Yeah. So um, if they know a few uh, birds, um, they also will know the birds who are uh, close to it. Okay. Um, So, but yeah, that's a lot of odors to train. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's possible. Okay. Yeah.
1: Does it, How big is that market become for detection dogs, the conservation or the wildlife protection side of things?
2: Um, it's becoming bigger and bigger um, because they really can see um, it's um, making a difference. Mm. So using these detection dogs um, and of course, there are a lot of things you have to do to uh, protect the animals. So um, yeah, not only when they're already dead and smuggled, but also try to um, protect them in the parks and um, all that stuff. But they really are um, putting more and more projects um, to use the detection dogs because they make
1: a difference. Sure. And how long does it take on average to train a dog for the conservation detection?
2: Um, I guess it's a bit similar to, uh, the bomb dogs and the narcotic dogs. So it depends. Yeah. If you start with a puppy or a young dog, it takes longer. Um, if the dog is already a bit older when you start training, yeah, you will, um, he will be ready sooner. Okay. Um, but yeah, I guess it's around the same age, like one and a half years or two years, they will be ready.
1: Okay. So, yeah. So, wow. So, um, because typically what we see here in the states things are done in let's say a scale of weeks or months they'll say okay i'll have a dog uh ready for a handler uh in 12 weeks or in some cases operational in 12 weeks or less is that accurate or you guys would actually train even longer than that before the dog goes out to the real world or real working environments for this conservation detection
2: um, yeah, I guess it's it's longer because um, they have a lot of odors to imprint. And then also um, a lot of, um, yeah, I will say from America and um, other countries, the, um, the handlers already know um, what they're going to do. They're already trained for it or they had um, another operational dog before. And um, you see with the wildlife projects, uh, because it's new, you also have to, um, it's also new for the countries. Mm-hmm. So, um, people never worked with working dogs or detection dogs before. So, they really have to learn from the beginning all the things. Um, yeah, you have to learn about detection before you can really be operational with uh, the wildlife detection dog.
1: Yeah. What kind of environments do these dogs work in? Is it like an airport or is it just out in nature, out on a conservation area where they have, let's say, uh, the actual wildlife where they live. Uh, where where do these dogs and handlers typically work to go locate these uh, contraband?
2: Um, it's actually in all kind of different situations. Um, so like you say, um, it's outside, so uh, around the national parks, but also in the airport, um, and uh, a lot of, like in Indonesia, they have a lot of um, different islands. So there are always ferries um, between the islands, and that's a lot of um, smuggling over there. Okay. So they really have to control and um, being roadblocks also. Okay, yeah, yeah. So they're doing
1: like uh, checkpoints kind of thing. So they search, yeah. uh, basically set up, everybody has to go through a checkpoint, kind of like what we would do here, either for uh, border crossing or things like that. Yeah. And the dogs are searching cars and luggage and, mm-hmm. and buses, or in this case, ferries. So they're even on, on the water searching on boats looking for people smuggling these items. Is that correct? Uh,
2: most of it its are the, the big ferries, so um, okay. before departure, um, when the people will get in, they will search um, on it. but it's possible to do it also on the smaller boats um, okay. who are just in the harbor.
1: How often do these dogs find stuff? Is it pretty regularly that they're finding stuff on on these people that are bringing stuff, or is it lots and lots of searching and then occasionally they find something? It's
2: actually a lot. Okay. So it also shows how big the problem is mm. because it's they yeah are getting a lot of animals abused and um, being smuggled. Mm-hmm. So if you see they found some sometimes every week, maybe more sometimes. So it's really a lot. So it's a big problem.
1: Yeah, and. You know, And I'll interview Wesley on a lot of these things as well, but uh, I know you guys have been very busy on that front, uh, protecting, like you said, the various wildlife species that are out there that are endangered. Um, And like you said, it's making a difference because obviously if these poachers are killing these animals, they're making their money by selling the parts of the animal. And if they aren't making their money selling those parts, then it makes a difference. They have to come up with other ways. I mean, we all understand it's like the drug world kind of thing, you know. They just try to get better about how they smuggle. Um, But what you guys are doing without a doubt is bringing light to that problem and then using a tool like a dog, using a tool like your dogs to locate um, and take those things out of their hands and kind of do what we can to discourage that problem from getting worse. Um, But also, you know, using an animal like a dog to protect other animals. And, And then on top of that, bringing that attention to this problem that exists, uh, out there as huge. I think that's a big, big deal. It's not, um, I think well known here in the States, how big that problem can be. I think in certain circles, people know that, but as a whole, um, it's overlooked, you know, uh, and it, this is something I think a lot of uh, people who want to get into detection dog work, um, could actually do something like this and help out. Uh, or it's there's various rules and regulations. Here we have the states, but different government entities run this, like FDA or, or I'm sorry, uh, USDA. Um, they handle a lot of those things. Um, customs, of course, uh they they deal with trying to prevent these things. But there are various um private entities that assist in this. Um, And I think that's something that could grow and and do. Because over in in Europe, it's private companies that do a lot of this work. Is that correct? Yes, yeah.
2: A lot of private companies. Yeah.
1: So that's something I think we could take a lesson from and, and do that ourselves here. So that being an aspect of what you guys do, let's talk a little bit about how you got to where you're at. And what I found fascinating, and I know a lot of the listeners will as well, is The education process in Europe to get to become a dog handler or a scent detection dog trainer, such as yourself, um, is unique. And, you know, the typical system in the United States is, of course, your grade school, high school, college, and then you go become, uh, I would say, get your experience after all of that. Uh, Where you guys take education is kind of more skill based. So, you go through your grade level of education, but then um, you guys kind of follow a path of what is your, going to be your career, what is going to be your skill. And then you receive specialized education on that skill. And then you actually go do the job for a while as like, kind of like an intern, as we spoke. And then you actually go do it. And I think that's fascinating. So, in this case, you're an, you know, a dog trainer and scent trainer. Tell us that process, how you started, you know, what was the first thing, what was the next and so forth until you got to where you're at now.
2: Okay, so I will start at the beginning. Um, So I just finished high school, um, so um, just the normal things. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what I was going to do, so, um, Mm -hmm. but I always loved animals and when I was a a kid, I always was around animals and all that stuff. So um, when I finished high school, I was like, okay, I wanna definitely wanna work with animals. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah, you know, I like wor- uh, working dogs, but I also like to work with other animals, native and non-native uh, animals. Um, so, yeah, we have a lot of educations. So we call it animal education. Okay. Um, so it's yeah like a basic thing. Um, so you learn about all kinds of animals.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we have it, I guess, Belgium and the Netherlands are pretty good at it. We have a lot of schools um, who offer those uh, opportunities. So yeah, like I said in the beginning, I live in Belgium, um, but I still decided to do my education in the Netherlands.
0: Okay.
2: Because like in Belgium, the most educations, like I guess it's college over Mm -hmm. here, um, it takes three years. Okay. And in those three years, you have a lot of theory, which is good, Um, but then you have like two internships. And Mm. so an internship is like two or three months. Okay. And uh, the school I went to in the Netherlands, it was actually two internships a year. So in three years, I had um, six internships, Wow. which I like more. So uh, I like to do the practical thing, um, really the hands-on and really working in yeah, the company, mm-hmm. um, working with the animals. Then, of course, theory is uh, important, but uh, I wanted to be more practical.
1: Sure, because we, like you said, you get to find out really fast. Uh, what they show you in theory and in classroom, does it really work when you're working with the animals? What was one of the first internships that you did?
2: Well, um, in my first year, I um, had an internship at a zoo. Okay. So I wanted to see like, how does it work over there with all the uh, wild animals? So yeah, it was a very interesting because um, yeah, a lot of animals you can see from close by, mm-hmm. and normally uh, you don't. Um, it's a hard work, but yeah, I understand why people want to work in a zoo. Um, then my second internship um, was, so a, re- oh, yeah, a, re- a rehabilitation oh, reha- center. Okay. Yes,
1: good. Okay. Um, yeah. Rehabilitation center. Yeah. yeah.
2: Um, so yeah, it was very nice because you um, take care of the sick animals or the injured animals, yep. but you release them again. So yeah. okay. that was, yeah, very nice because um, of course, the animals um, who you could release uh, has been released um, if when they were um, healthy, again. healthy again. yeah. Um, but they also had um, like snakes, oh, which okay. we don't have in Belgium. But um, like um, the exotic animals, people gotcha. uh, can't have in the house anymore because yeah. uh, they have to remove them. So they also took them in. It was a bi- okay. li- little bit also for a shelter for exotic animals. So yeah, it was very, uh, interesting and I really loved because you're being a part of, um, healing the animals again and mm-hmm. just put them out, uh, where they belong. So, um, yeah, I really love that working with, uh, all kind of animals, mm-hmm. but then in my second year I decided, um, to work with guide dogs. Okay. So I worked with, uh, guide dogs. Yeah. For blind people. Oh yeah. And, uh, my other internship was with, um, dogs for hearing impaired. Mm. So it's also with guide dogs, um, at assistance dogs. So it's also very interesting because, yeah, it's also the dogs are working; they're really um, making the life of the person easier or better. Um, but oh yeah, I was also interested in um, the real working dogs, like uh, police dogs and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So I decided, okay, in my third year, I also want to do um, some scent work. Okay, um, and then actually, um, i in, in the so. The first year and the second year, it was more basic. Mm -hmm. Um, So we learned about all kinds of animals. And then in third year, uh, we had a lot of extra classes. So you could really specialize in something you really loved. Um, So it was like you could work with farm animals or with um, pet animals like rabbits and um, cats and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. You could do dog massage. So Mm -hmm. you really had a lot of opportunities uh, you could work with horses, um, birds of prey, so it was really, really good. And of course, there was one class and it was um, with detection dogs okay So um, like before the the classes starts, um, you have like an information day so you can really um, have a look at all the classes you can follow and which one nice. you want to follow, okay. So then Wesley Fisher, um, was there, doing was a, there. Okay. Yeah. So he was talking about it, um, showed us some uh, demonstration with the dogs mm-hmm. and it was so fascinating, um, mm-hmm. because of the scent work and, um, yeah, he told it with a lot of passion. So I said like, okay, I really want to follow his classes. So I did. Um, so we had the regular classes going on, um, during the year and, um, then there was one day um, in a week. We had a full day of training in the extra class. Okay. So it was a full day of training with the detection dogs for me. Okay. So yeah, I really loved it. I was really, from that moment, I was hooked on it. Um, I really wanted to know more about it and keep doing it. So um, it was a bit of a travel, but I really wanted to do, to do my last internship um, at Centimeter for Dogs. Okay. Um, so yeah, it was like, okay, it's very good. i eh? uh, love you to come over here. So I did my internship and um, I really learned a lot. Um, I was really able to do a lot of things, also mm-hmm. not only watching how um, he worked the dog, but also yeah, really doing it and using um, the clicker because we use a lot of clicker. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, really interesting things. Um, so I was like, wow, this must be a dream job. Sure. Yeah. So then and then basically was uh, like, hey, you want to work here? So I was like. <laughs> Of course yes, I do. Really, I really want to. Um, that's and that's how I actually
0: got, got this job. Right. Okay. Yeah.
1: What I find fascinating is, with that education, you learned. You started off learning about a lot of other animals that aren't dogs. Yet, would you say, based on what you learned through your education, how you communicate to all the animals, especially when it comes to training, is almost the same you're using the same principles of training, operant conditioning, classical conditioning, things like that. So regardless of the animal, the method to use for training or communicating is the same. Is that correct through your education you've learned?
2: Yeah, of course, Um, because we learned about all the techniques you can use and how animals and also humans can Mm -hmm. learn. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, you can... Use that in theory. You, you you learn that in theory, and then you can put it into practice.
1: Yeah, and it, and it's so important that like you, I wish and I hope this starts happening here more in the United States, where there's a like you said after you finish high school, you get a chance to go into more of a specialty. We we, we call a vocation, and that vocational education starts off with like you said your theory, your book work that teaches you why things happen or why or what's been learned so far. And because there's out here and and worldwide, there's tons of research that's done specifically with dogs in this case, um, where there's valuable information, but then there's a lot of information that's either not real accurate or just doesn't really apply because Yes, it worked well in a laboratory, but it doesn't translate really well when you go out to actually work or you take yeah. a you take a dog from yeah, yeah. So, but the value of getting to see that in an educational, you know, uh, aspect as you're going through your schooling, you get to go, okay, you're in a classroom, you're being taught all these things, you know, from B.F. Skinner and so on and so forth, and then all of a sudden now you get to go actually work with the animals. And you spend a year doing that. And then for you, your journey led you to seeing Wesley at uh, the college there doing his demonstration with scent dogs. And then that really took you in. But what I also find really interesting, because it ties into the cognitive stuff that I teach, uh, cognition initially, where I was with Duke University, started off with guide dogs or the handicap assistant dogs, Canine Companions for Independence, um, they were one of the first to kind of start applying cognitive testing to help them pick better dogs or look at litters and say, okay, in this litter, this dog and this dog do really well in the cognitive test. So we will start putting more effort into them as they grow up because the probability of them turning into a good working dog for uh, the handicap was strong. What was super unique is when I got involved, I come in from the working dog side um, at that time with the Navy SEAL dogs and looking at what we were doing, I was looking at the opposite side of things that they were looking at. So for example, uh, they wanted a dog who looked to the human for a lot of interaction. And I wanted a dog who did the opposite of that. I wanted a dog who was super independent, made all his own choices, didn't listen to what I said, especially if he knew what the answer was, or he needed to get, uh, find odor or engage with somebody who's hiding from them. And the tests stay the same. I just look at it a different result than
0: they do. Canines Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well now, many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club Channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club Channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again go to wwwfordk slash webinar. And
1: that was super fascinating. So to hear that you spent time uh, with the assistance dogs, do you think that gave you a different look or an insight or an advantage when you got to go working with detection dogs?
2: Um, Yeah, they they do, of course, different things. Uh, You're looking for different things. Yeah, of course, there are similar things. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, like you say, um, at the end, they're doing a different job. Um, But I think, yeah, the most important thing is if you uh, just look at the behavior of the dog Mm -hmm. and then you will... You can actually work with, yeah, a lot of kind of dogs. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the most important thing. You can really look at the dog and really um, make a personal plan for that dog and not be like, okay, we do it always like this. So mm-hmm, this yeah. dog also has to do it all the same, yeah. but you really have to adapt your plan to the dog.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the things I try to preach a lot is uh, you train the dog in front of you. You know, sure, you might have some boundaries in your training. I go this far or this far, but you have to train specifically for that dog in front of you, which means you have to be flexible as a trainer to know, okay, with this dog, I might do this instead of that. But if you're only sticking to one style of training, you're going to have some problems. You're going to run into things because not every dog's going to adapt the same way. Or, like, again, with cognition, not every dog's memory is the same. So you have to be willing to, to adjust. And that's big, you know, and, and a lot of times as trainers or as the human part, we get comfortable in the certain things that we like with training. So we become inflexible. And then because of that, the dogs aren't, we're not as efficient as trainers as we can be. Uh, but by being flexible, you increase your efficiency, which means you train your dogs better. So, um, I think that was a valuable lesson. I think you got to see, you know you got to spend time in a different type of dog category, but it also helped, you know you got to see things as you transitioned into detection work, um, that you had to be flexible and learn all the different things about these dogs that user knows more than they do things to like lift things off the ground or bring things or guide somebody to to a location. So what was your what would you say? is one of the most important things you've learned when you first got into detection dogs? What was something that kind of got your attention? Oh,
2: uh, the most important thing is, I guess, um, to look at the emotion. Okay. So see the difference in uh, behavior and see the emotion change. Okay. Um, because when yeah the dog sniffs the odor, uh, you see the emotion change. And that, yeah, I guess that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. We,
1: and, and that's, uh, I think, and you, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've been around Wesley, so I know what he means by that. For the listener, that basically means what we typically call a change in behavior when the dog reacts uh, in that and they're how they describe that is an emotional response. And that it, and it kind of is with cognition. That's there's some of like, oh, I found it. I have a video on uh, recently that I had posted on my social media where my dog, uh, my new dog, Gamble, was finding a firearm. And I had it on the scent wall and he smells it and almost like jumps He's like, oh, I found it. So yes, yeah, it, was, like it was a very yeah. Yeah, profound uh, experience or, or reaction from him. Uh, very emotional in a sense that he, oh, I found it. I uh, caught him off guard almost. So um, reading the emotion in the dog, as you said, is, is very key. Um, how about communication? Uh, what's important as a handler to do? And also what's important as a handler not to do when working a detection dog?
2: Um, yeah. First of all, be patient um, <laughs> because sometimes when the dog is trying to figure it out, uh, people want to do all kind of stuff. Um, but sometimes you you just need to give them time so they will think about it and work it out, and they um, mm-hmm. will learn more about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we say like, "Oh, it's over here." So yeah, you found it, good boy. Yeah. But then actually, you did it, be, um, you and did not, the a jo- not a not do- a not a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and yeah, the the dogs need to be independent. Of course, mm-hmm. it's also about working together and being a team. Um, but yeah, with a detection dog, you need them to be independent and mm-hmm. just follow their nose.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the things you and I were talking about recently was uh, how the power of uh, marker or bridge has really started to evolve in the detection dog world. Uh, how important have you found that in the training that you've done and the training that you do with Wesley? How important is marker training to detection work from your experience? So,
2: um, especially with in the beginning with the green dogs, um, we use a lot of um, the marker. Um, so, it's it's a clear sign uh, for the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a lot of courses um, running around. So, if you're training with the students, we can give like our clicker, mm-hmm. we can give it to the students. And for the dog, it will still um, be the same. Yes. It will st- Yes, the same uh
1: same noise happening. Yes, on yeah. same
2: noise working, yeah.
1: So it gives them a chance to kind of learn timing themselves, yeah. Yeah. even though they're not the ones working the dog. Yeah. So now, as a trainer, you know, my reaction I think of at first is, well, what if this student makes a mistake and clicks at the wrong point? How how bad is that for the dogs?
2: Yeah, of course, you... you um you first have to show them and explain them. You're not going to be like, here's a clicker and just try out yep. <laughs> because then it's going to mess up your dog. Sure. Um, so, and sometimes we have a backup clicker. Okay. So we say like, if you're not sure to click, don't worry if it has to be a click, we will click um, okay. just on a good time. And yeah, y- you will make mistakes. It can't be perfect. Exactly. So um, if you make one mistake with the clicker, okay. Just get over it and mm-hmm. just focus and do it again, and then the dog will forget about
1: it. Yeah, it still learns. Yeah, even if we make mistakes, <laughs> and that's proven even with systems that don't use markers, the dog still learns despite yeah. the human mistakes. You know, it, it may create confusion at times, but what's beautiful about a clicker or a marker, in the sense, is that you can, by having that tool, that marker, that click you're able to still signify the really the right behavior you want. So even if you messed up, let's say we want a dog who's got a good sit and stare and they're focusing on odor, and you, you clicked right when the dog is scratching and you don't want scratching. Well, of course, we know that might have the dog scratch the next time. So we just wait it out. And what's again, what's perfect about that is when the dog is doing what we want, sniffing and staring and whatever, we can click right there. So it allows you to have something that immediately at the speed of sound tells the dog, this is what I want. And it's a very powerful tool. And you brought up a good point there, which is when you're working with students and teaching students, having a clicker allows them to learn and the sound is the same versus sometimes verbal. And I use, and people that know me know I use both. I use clicker and verbal. Uh, I transition to verbal as the teams progress. In the beginning, I always use clicker. Um, and the reason that is just on the professional side of things, uh, we always make a joke how handlers forget their toy half the time. So let alone if they forgot their toy, I know most will even forget the clicker, yes. but the one thing they won't forget is a word and they'll, it'll have something that still has a powerful meaning like a, like the clicker does, but a clicker is consistent and obviously our voices are going to be different. So there's the the arguments that typically can happen at times when people debate, well, do you use a clicker, do you use a voice, a verbal marker and stuff like that? Um, you, you can easily do both. I, I've In my experience, I've done it hundreds of dogs that way, but Uh, I love the fact that in teaching, it allows the students when you have that clicker to be a part of that training and understand and learn their timing. And then whether they use a verbal or clicker later on, they actually in that stage learned timing. They got to watch a dog work, even though they weren't handling, they got to be the one that clicked and it still has the exact same thing that we want the dog. They learn timing. The dog still gets reinforcement based off that click. It's a great little tool, I feel. Um, Do you guys do like... Uh, as you're teaching somebody for the first time to use a clicker, do you guys do any type of games so they learn how to communicate? What do you guys do to help them understand?
2: Um, yeah, sometimes we do the the clicker games, like um, yeah, probably um, the most known, uh, like throwing the ball in the air and you just every time you click on the highest point and all that stuff. Okay. Um. So yeah, we do that. Okay. Um. But also. When, when we see people uh, are pretty good at it, yeah. um, so um, we just introduce them and we really guide them through like, okay, now we, we, you won't click or mm-hmm. uh, now is a good time to click. Okay. And you also do that before you give them the clicker so they understand what they're doing yep. with that type of dog. Okay, okay, this is the good moment to click. We do that.
1: Okay. Um, besides, so we, I do the game here with the ball. When, the, when they bounce the ball, when turn the ball hits the ground, they got to click so it gets them used to timing. So then I do one where they toss a ball back and forth with somebody. So the people who aren't tossing the ball are the ones clicking. And I always tell them I said whenever the person catches the ball, that's when you click. So I tell the people throwing the ball back and forth, every now and then, don't catch the ball. Get real close but don't catch it. And let people learn timing that they think something's going to happen, they real and then it doesn't happen. So yeah. Cause so they learn timing that way, like you said. And then because we're humans, we anticipate something happen and we might click too fast. Um, Wesley had made the joke with me sometimes. He goes, sometimes Cameron, you're almost too good with a clicker. You know, you, you get it right there versus letting them do this or that for a couple seconds more or, you know, let something else happen and see if it really works. Um, so those kind of games are so good and so fun because it's interactive. People do one or do that and they get to learn. I also do another version where I'll put like uh, three or four different items on a table and I'll say, "Okay, the person with a clicker, I want you to think of what you want the person who doesn't have a clicker who's in front of those items, what you want them to do with those items. Do you want them to pick one item A up and move it over to item C? Do you want them to take item C and put it in a box that's near on the table as well?" But you, the only whatever is in your head, you have to communicate that only by the clicker. And what is so amazing and it happens every time is um, the person who's the test subject who has to figure out what the the clicker person wants, they start to feel frustrated sometimes because they're like, I've I've picked up this one, I've picked up that one, I've moved this one here, I don't know what they want from me. And then the person with the clicker knows exactly what they want in their head, but the other person who's doing the test doesn't know what they want. So it gives the person who is being tested in a way uh, to feel what the dog feels like. So yeah, as the handler or trainer, you know what you want, but the dog doesn't. And that delay of waiting for the click frustrates you because you're trying things, but the click isn't happening. And the longer and longer time goes by and you're not getting that click, frustration builds. And when frustration builds, in this case, your anger, you're, you're like, I don't want to do this. I don't, I don't get it. And that's a point to start to learn as, as the trainer or the handler to avoid if you can with a dog. If you see frustrating frustration happening, maybe stop the exercise for a second, maybe reset the exercise so the dog the, or the human, in this case as we do the experiment, has a chance to figure it out. And sometimes just placing an object in a different area or moving something or for dogs setting up the area slightly different allows the the subject to figure out what you want and to receive that reinforcement, that click faster. But a lot of times because it's in our head, we think we know the answer uh, that the animal does too, or the test subject does too, it, they don't. And a lot of bad things come from frustration. And, and you know, uh, with dogs, it could be aggression or uh, I say aggression being something like scratching or biting at something or what have you, or in some cases just leaving, yes. you know, with a dog who's got less motivation to work, they might be like, oh, I'm just gonna go lay down. I'm getting nothing out of this. So those games are so important to for the human to understand communication and the power of communication with a signal and if your communication is good or your variables are right it it's something that can happen very fast but just being off a little bit or you think you know what you're doing as far as communicating you can sometimes find out you're not on the right track and it requires some resetting and things like that so i love that you guys do that and you get to go through that yourself because it's catching on here more in the united states a good friend of mine mike Suttle, does a lot of these games with chickens they learn how to do communication with chickens, and because they're very fast.
2: Yeah. And and dogs, they really want to please us. They really want to do good. They will keep on trying. And other animals like chickens, they're like, "You don't click good, so I'm not going to do it." Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's really, really good to go through that for sure. So um, now that so you've been at uh, scent imprint for dog for how many years?
2: Um, I guess, yeah, uh, four years around. Okay, four years. Like that.
1: So in that four years, you've been a part of not just training adult dogs, but also training puppies, correct? Yes. Yeah. What have you learned and what are some of the things that you do with puppies to get them ready for detection work?
2: Um, um, yeah. In the first place, a lot of environment training, uh, because if you have a good detection dog, but he can't work in other environments, yeah, uh, you won't get far. Mm-hmm. So um, especially with the puppies, we also focus on that, uh, but also with the older dogs, because mm-hmm. um, Use it or lose it, they say. Yeah. Um, yeah, So you have to keep on repeating it. Um, But with the puppies, um, when they're really young, um, like eight weeks old to 12 weeks or something, they actually can do longer sessions. So we always always think like, oh, they really have to have a short Short session. session." Um, but they can actually do a lot of repeats, especially when you do the boxes or something. Mm-hmm. And then you see, like, if they're four months old or a little bit older, they yeah, you have to go to short uh, sessions mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, like the puppies, they are just um, beginning in their life. Um, so it's great if if the first thing they know mm-hmm. or going to do or going to learn is actually scent work.
1: Okay. Do you guys introduce odor at that age?
2: Yeah. Okay, so, yeah.
1: Uh, how do you introduce the odor to them?
2: Um, sometimes we do it with a toy. Mm-hmm. So um, we put the toy in the... Um,
1: like a box or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Um,
2: so the toy is smelling like um,
1: whatever, the odor. odor. Yep. Okay.
2: Yeah. So they're actually searching for the toy, mm-hmm. but actually they're already searching for the oh, odor. odor. Um, but also, uh, so that's one thing, um, but also just on the boxes, um, using a toy or uh, food together with the odor like we do with the older dogs. Mm-hmm. So we you can do that also. Mm-hmm. Um, pups will be good at it. But because of their young age, yep. it's just like they know nothing else. So they're yep. just free to go. They're just, yeah. Try you can do a want. lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So you guys create an environment that allows them to explore. And through yeah. that exploration, they find, the, in this case, the odor that they're looking for. And when they do, there's a, a reinforcer there, some either a food, toy, what have you. And which, which is pretty powerful with young dogs to get that mindset going. Um, you know, it's, it, this starts a conversation that I've been trying to have here more in the United States, which is we have to be better and get better at raising young dogs. Because like me and you talked about yesterday, there's good genetics here in the United States when it comes to dogs, just like you guys have great genetics. You know, everybody kind of thinks, well, all, all the best genetics is in Europe, would you not agree that we now have quite good genetics with dogs here in the United States as well? So with that said, we have, um, you know, where we lack, where you guys are strong at is how to raise those dogs and take them from puppies to the adult that eventually becomes a working dog. Um, you know, the, one of the things that gets brought up a lot, I said it to you yesterday, uh, a lot of Americans are like, well, when we have a litter, only like two dogs turn out to actually be what the, what I need them to be. And and what do I do with the, if I had a litter of 10 and only two come out good, what do I do with the eight dogs? It's just going to fill up pounds and animal control and all these kind of things. Uh, what do you say to that? Because you guys do lots of breedings of dogs, not just the in I'm saying in the country itself does breeds dogs a lot. And yet you don't have the problems that we do. So why do you think that is?
2: Um... Um, I guess, yeah, maybe um, we're more um, really training. I mean, I mean, training like in uh, environment training uh, and um, in the house with the dogs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're really used to more of things. Um, But... um, Yeah, I have to say, um, like, what we do is we we don't pick a whole litter, because Mm -hmm. then we would have eight pups at a time, so that's too much. So, yeah, we also just um, have a few dogs, maybe two or three. So, yeah, then you also take the best of the the litter, so I would say. Um, But, of course, the other dogs, they don't are wasted you know yeah. um, but they are more like um going into the sport okay so they maybe do detection for fun or mm-hmm. um like an active house um mm-hmm. they will they will find so um i uh, definitely if you yeah it should be uh, possible mm-hmm. um to get a whole leader and we have a leader, we know a leader um who are all working dogs mm-hmm. so it is possible um but like for us for the company yeah if we have 10 puppies at one time it would be too much sure <laughs> so yeah. we, we we um pick the best pick one yeah we like um but yeah the other dogs maybe go into the detection sport or something mm-hmm. or um just active house mm-hmm. yeah
1: and that's important because you know people get so singular sighted they say oh okay well if i can't get 10 detection dogs in my litter. It's a litter is wasted and it's not. You can still, like you said, find uses. And as the sport of nose work and scent work increases here in the United States, that means there's lots of availability for things for these dogs to do. I think we get focused on the dollar sign. A lot of times we're looking at, Oh, well th- those dogs don't make me any money. Why would I want those? But they still can. It's just a different way. Um, and like you said, you've picked strong dogs to do the professional work and then those dogs get trained up and they go out and do a job. Going into like a little bit of the breeding aspect, those top dogs that you guys decide to keep, do you guys breed those usually? What usually happens? Do they obviously? We, I know they go to work. They they get purchased by either Americans or other countries or whatever. Um, how do you guys maintain those good genetics? What do you guys do for that? Do you so? you've picked these great dogs, you like them, do you guys breed them possibly before they go or does maybe the breeder ask to breed with certain dogs before they're sold or anything like that? How do you guys do that?
2: Um, yeah, we, we search for um, the the parents. So okay. um, if there are... Yeah, a lot of dogs come from hunting lines. Okay. Uh, So you see they're better because they're uh, independent and they love to use their nose. So um, if you get dogs from a hunting line, you know, like they're really working. Yeah. Um, So you can have... uh, hunting Labrador but you can also have the house pet Labrador (laughs) Um, so it will be a difference maybe the house pet Labrador will be good for fun so doing detection for fun but not for the work we want
0: Um,
2: so yeah we really um, look for the energetic um, athletic um, working lines Mm -hmm. um, in all kind of breeds Um, and then yeah we um, see the offspring so maybe um, you can have a look at the offspring. So, like, are there a lot of dogs working from this breeder yeah. breeder, um, working in scent detection or other kind of jobs? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we contact them. We ask a lot of questions, like, what do they do with the with yeah. the puppies? Because that's also important. Um, at least they're staying eight weeks with the, the breeder. So okay. there should be things happening. Um, so the breeder takes them out or um, use some balancing stuff so they can mm-hmm. walk over little bridges and all yeah, that stuff. Exactly. So that's a very important part. It
1: goes back to that environmental aspect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's, you know, it's like the, the blueprint of the dog. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we want the dogs to um, learn a lot already in those mm-hmm. eight weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, sometimes it's also yeah like trying a bit, so um, it's not always a hundred percent guarantee. But I still think we have yeah almost all the dogs we trained are um, out there operational. Um, so yeah, I guess we have a good a good eye for that.
1: Sure, and you brought up a keyword. The you look for dogs that come from a strong hunting background, and you know one of the things that you know I have seen it comes up in conversation in the United States is. Uh, we definitely have some good hunting dogs here where they lack is environmental because most of the time the hunters just have the dogs in a kennel with a bunch of other dogs and they take them out to fields and they only go search there we see that great nose and we see how long they'll hunt for but the minute we bring them near a car or near inside of a building they don't know what to do and that ends up where we don't pick any dogs from that too much because of those problems so um, there are some things happening here in the United States that I'm aware of already that, that are helping that quite a bit. They're getting those good hunting line uh, stock dogs, and but they're being raised by detection dog people. So they are getting that good genetic and then their job from that puppy age is bringing them into all the environments that we're going to do in detection and get them exposed like you just said. Um, I think that's a key difference where you just brought up is the hunters from your side of the world or globe there uh, actually do a lot of environmental stuff that's beneficial for detection too. It's not just you know shooting at a bird and watching the bird fall and the dog goes and gets it and that kind of thing. Your people are doing things like you said, getting the dog used to crossing a bridge or being on something uncomfortable and, and how they're dealing with that. Um, so that's, I think a big difference that we'll adapt to, uh, here in the States. And as this need for detection dogs, of course, keeps growing, uh, makes changes within our breeding system or our dogs in general, but it's very unique. You know, I know hunting is important, but you guys put a lot of stock into that. And with that said, breeds, we've seen a significant shift starting to happen in the detection dog world when it comes to breeds. Uh, what are you guys doing or what are you guys seeing when it comes to breeds these days? Because I know the traditional has always been like Labrador and stuff like that. What what has changed? What are you guys seeing and using dogs? What kind of breed are you using more often now in detection work?
2: Um, so, yeah, we, we still uh, have a lot of like the, the ones you said, like Labradors or the Shepherds or the, the Spaniels. Mm-hmm. Uh, we still have a lot of dead dogs. Um, but we also have a lot of pointers, so German short-haired pointers. Yep. Um, because they're yeah they're good size um, they're yeah uh, big enough yeah uh, and they just do great work they love to do it uh, they can keep on searching for a long time they really love it and also in the environment they're pretty stable
1: mm-hmm. right. yeah, yeah you said it right yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so yeah th- they make uh, very good uh, detection dogs yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: now with. Uh you, you we had a fun conversation again prior to the podcast um, and I asked you your favorite dogs to work with um, go ahead tell the listeners uh, what was your favorite dog or favorite breeds to work with
2: um, Yeah, actually because we have a lot of different type of dogs um, I really love that because it's not only one type of yeah. dog or only one breed you're working with um, and we have them from all ages so it, I really have an interesting job with working all these uh, different kind of dogs but yeah, if I really have to pick one, it would be I guess the cocker spaniel. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We have uh, yeah a lot of dogs we trained and uh, put out operational, um, and it's always also great to hear back from uh, the finds they had or they doing well and all that stuff. But yeah, my, my heart goes, uh, my it heartbeat is. goes a bit bigger than uh, when I get a cocker spaniel. I don't know. They yeah great size. You can pick them up. You can put them up high sure. when you have to search for uh, something high. Um they just love to search. Mm-hmm. Uh they're very social, so they go around with everyone. Um, busy environment, they don't mind. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, I love them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the and and then the other thing we talked about was the Sprocker, which is like the Springer and Cocker, which I'm starting to see more of and I'm liking a lot myself. Um, and then of course the pointer for me, and I think here in the United States, we're starting to see that a lot more. Um the, you know, obviously the number one detection floppy ear dog that everybody got used to was the Labrador, um, kind of like in the old days when it was, when you thought a police dog, you thought of a German Shepherd. Now it's evolved to basically being a lot of Malinois, Dutch Shepherds, and German Shepherds, but uh, the Malinois and Dutch Shepherd have picked up the numbers quite a bit. Um, I'm seeing that same change happen uh, with the detection dogs going from Labrador to Pointer, and also, the Springers have been fairly popular, but there's a stigma about height. People are like, oh, I don't want this tiny little dog. I want a dog who's bigger. Uh, and I think the Pointer kind of fills that look part for people. Yeah, yeah. But I can say, uh, working with them, uh, both kind of like the, the Springers and then the Sprocker and then the Pointer, um, there's advantages to all of them. All of them are very good. And I think the diversity... That we are seeing in the detection dog world now with the different breeds is only going to help because uh, I love a good pointer when I, when they're working because they're so obvious when they have odor. And that's obviously a, a problem where a lot of handlers are like, I, well, I'm not 100% sure if my dog's got odor or not. I mean, we did a video, <laughs> filmed you today with one of the new dogs, and this pointer was going up a shelf, sniffing high, leaned his head all the way backwards, like he almost fell down because he's his brain was telling him just to follow the odor like he would be outside looking for a bird, but in this case, it's the drug odor, almost tipped over doing it because he's following air current, and, and pointers uh, are so amazing at following air current, almost better than, I would say, other breeds naturally. Other breeds do it, but pointers over and over again naturally just seem to have that where their head kind of pivots and you can see it and me and you were talking about yeah. this one dog spins like he gets in the other goes all the way out to the edge nope not there comes back and just go oh nope not there comes back and it, it's so easy to it's know so easy
2: it's so natural for them yeah
0: yeah
1: and, and and with the you know springers or sprockers or things like that they're very fast dogs you know so sometimes they're hard to read because they're going you know boom 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 boom, boom real fast and all a sudden stop and then before you know it, they're on odor or that, that pointer, because of how they just, it's so flowing that that's the big difference I see. Uh, labs have it too, but labs are kind of like in that middle ground they are They can be, you know, pointer like, but they can also be spazzes like yeah. springers and then they move so fast and all of a sudden, boom, they are on odor and they stop. So it's, so you, obviously you guys have seen a dramatic increase in those breeds, um, what would you say is the most popular breed for detection in Europe?
2: Um, yeah, I guess it's still the mix-up. Yeah. guess all, all the all the breeds.
1: So you guys have a pretty diverse... You couldn't say there's one strongest one. It's pretty good yeah, balance. You see the Shepherds, the but yeah. you
2: also see the Labradors. You yeah. still still see the Spaniels. Mm-hmm. Uh, pointers are coming up more and more.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: But it, it's still, yeah, the mix of it.
1: Okay, yeah. And it's, you know, obviously here in the States, it's definitely been labs, but yeah. that's changing quite a bit. Um. You know, in in one of the things that we've uh, I was talking to you about because there's a lot of misconceptions uh, about what's going on in Europe compared to or what we're being told uh, that all the best dogs aren't are never sold to Americans. Um, <laughs> I laugh at that because I lived there, so I knew. In, in fact, it's kind of the opposite. You know, the the best dogs, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of them are sold. And it's you know, it's a business, so it's always sold to the highest buyer. And for a long time, Americans spent all the most money buying dogs. Um, so would you say that's an inaccurate statement that the, the best dogs are only kept in Europe and we get their garbage?
2: No, no, definitely not. No, <laughs> I guess if, if you ask for a dog on that moment, like I want a dog for this discipline, mm-hmm. um, it's not like, oh, we just give him the, the toughest one or the, the baddest one. No.
1: Yeah. No, and it's because, again, it's a business. So you guys want good dogs to be put out there because you trained them and you've raised them and you've bred them. Uh, You're not holding them back. But where I think the misconception comes from is you guys are constantly breeding good dogs. So I think people just assume... And they hear through friends or whatever is like, oh, no, 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 we the, this is my dog, I keep him here. Um, but I've never come across somebody either from Holland or wherever else, if someone offer the right money, they know they're happy to take the next dog they have in their their house anyway and raise that one and then sell that one. Of course, there's really good dogs that get kept and bred for a while, but uh, I think it's fairly accurate to say if a good dog is there for a little while, they'll breed it a lot and then they still sell it, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, and that's a lot with more on the sports side with KNPV and I things guess. like that. Yeah. I, I guess
2: I, I can't say it's in uh, detection work like that. Maybe yeah. other disciplines, but...
1: Yeah, hmm. not so much with that. Um, how would you say the state of um, people of, in the age range of, let's say, 40 to 20, is there still a big interest in working dogs and people in this age range or is it dropping down a lot?
2: Um, you mean working dogs in general?
1: Yeah, like working with dogs in either detection or sport, like KNPV. Is there still a lot of interest in the younger generation in working dogs, or is it dropped down a lot?
2: No, it's still, and it's it's still a lot of interesting, and um, it's also coming up. Okay. especially with the scent work yep. uh, more and more so maybe I don't, I can't say it for sure but maybe um, with the the guard, the guard dogs and the, the biting and all that stuff yep. uh, maybe it's got a little bit uh, less than it was mm-hmm. uh, but yeah I'm not into that so so I yeah. can't say that um, but definitely the scent work and um, being a dog handler and all that stuff It's it's coming up um, I guess it's also s- social media uh, yeah. because you can see a, a lot more about it. So you're like, Hey, maybe I want to do that. Yeah. And, um, it's also getting bigger for, um, for fun. So like the sport levels. Yeah. So people who have a dog as a pet and they still want to do something active, um, they can do it yeah, for fun. Do nose work. Yeah. Yeah. They yeah. can do nose work. So that's definitely
1: increasing coming. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Really a lot. And that's going to do nothing but help the detection dog world in a sense, kind of like how KNPV is for police dogs. So there's people that do sport, but they happen to have a really good dog that ends up being a police dog later on. I think the same thing was going to happen in the sport world with detection. Somebody, you know, not that particular dog, but they'll raise a dog or they'll breed. They're like, they'll have this really good dog that's good in, let's say, nose work And people like us see it and go, wow, that dog should breed with another one and maybe some puppies that can be raised to turn into uh, the next generation that would be a professional detection dog. Um, And then the other flip side of that was, like you said, those that are breeding for professional detection dogs now have an outlet for dogs that may not be as strong environmentally, but they're very good for sport work. So it's in, in some cases one sport can help the the working side, but really in detection the professional side will really probably help the the sport world a lot more because even though it doesn't work as a professional dog, it's still a great dog for for nose work. So
2: yeah, we see because um, we also have um, the levels, so uh, we have uh, courses running, so uh, people with a uh, dog school mm-hmm. um, who are instructor they can follow courses at our place and they can do the scent work like a hobby so like yeah. uh, like for fun and it's really getting popular and um, it's just so nice to see because people love it yeah. they really uh, getting in- intense into it yeah um, and the dogs also love it so it c- can be a little dog it can be a big dog mm-hmm. a puppy an older one uh maybe a dog who has uh got injured yeah. and needs to calm down a little bit but mm-hmm. still has to do something uh with his nose so it's it's really for everyone, and it's just lovely how you see the dogs and the people work together as a team and just do something together that's that's very good yeah
1: yeah for sure the so well in closing here if what would you recommend uh for a person who wants to kind of be like you where they uh, have a chance to become a professional uh, trainer and work dogs professionally, like finding either, like we talked about in the beginning, uh, conservation detection dogs, um, or maybe even bed bug dogs. Because uh, we know sometimes the bomb and drug world's more for law enforcement, military, customs kind of thing. Um, but that path, uh, you know, how important was theory? And then if you had to, I'll ask it this way. What was more important, learning theory or being an intern?
2: Yeah, for me, um, it was being the intern. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, of course, you also have to be a bit lucky. Um, So I always say I'm I'm very lucky that I had this job. Um, But um, um, I'm also very happy that um, I followed the path I chose. So, of course, I didn't know years ago. I was like, okay, I'm going to end up uh, with this company. So I was like, okay. I want to go in this direction and work with animals and then I want to work with dogs. So um, just do your best, really do your best because there's a lot of people out there uh, wanting to do the same, mm-hmm. like getting the same job. Yeah. So um, you really have to do it with passion and um, choose your way. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, you will get where you want to go. Yeah. So for me, it was very good. I had I mean, um, an education with a lot of internships because yeah, f- f- personal. I think I learned the more the most um, up there,
1: yeah. and not
2: only at school.
1: No, and and like we, we both agree, the learning of theory and the and the and the classroom stuff's important. But your tr- the true value of learning dogs and, and becoming a good trainer and handler is just doing it, um, and you know, one of my plans here at Silver State is to start building a internship kind of program. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what's the best way to do it, because where you guys are unique in Europe is your your uh, educational institutions offer those classes that link to a facility like ours here at Silver State, where then you come here and, and do internship with me. So, I think that's a big key if we could change here in the United States is possibly, and maybe there's listeners that have ideas how to make this happen, but there needs to be that link between um, whether it be a community college or be a university where the person can get some of that uh, formal education on theory and things like that. But then that institution is also attached to professional uh, businesses who have the dogs to train. And I can tell you firsthand, you've seen it here too. I need help myself. I mean, I'm busy with so many things that I would love to teach a person. uh, Here, here's what I need you to do. Here's how to work these dogs. And for them, the more dogs they get their hands on by being here and working gives them experience. Uh, and, And in turn, it helps me out because then I know dogs are getting run you know, four and five times a day versus the two or three times that I do it when I'm by myself because I'm only one person. So, um, but I think as a whole in the United States, because I get emails and and questions all the time, like I want to be a handler, or I want to be a trainer. How do I go about doing that? And we lack that connective piece between the uh, academic institution and where the vocation or the actual doing the job is. Because at the end of the day, that's after they get experience, that's what they'll get work. They'll actually get paid to do it. So, um, hey, maybe this you know provokes a thought for somebody listening to this this podcast. It says, hey, Cameron, I have a way that we can make this work, or I know somebody that can do this and do that. Uh, I hope that sparks at a minimum a conversation uh, where people can walk away and go, you know what? At a minimum, I should try to at least be an intern. You know, volunteer my time to learn this skill. Because just like you, once you did that, the money came. You were able to do it professionally, correct? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I, again, I hope this at least gets people thinking. Um, and if someone, you know, is interested in a internship, reach out to a professional institution um, that does whatever line of dog work you want and see if they're willing to do some intern um You know, it it takes a little bit, you know, you know, people when they have business have to protect business a little bit and they do that. But as a whole to us move forward, we have to do these things. So I think it's important. So. Thank you for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it, and it's been fun. And I'm about ready to send you out to go explore some more Las Vegas. We're going to go down to Fremont Street. You're going to have some fun out there. Uh, last night, you definitely got a uh, quite the dinner experience. Yeah, wow. Thanks to our friends over at the Wynn Hotel. Yeah. Um, that was really amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and then today you got to have some fun with some local yeah. police here, yeah. got to be on a police motorcycle, yeah. got to be in a vehicle, yeah. watch some dogs work, uh, got to see a certification being done. So, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm thankful you brought these dogs. It, it helps us. Uh, I love the unity that we can have between, you know, uh, people like yourself in in, uh, in Europe and us here in the United States too because we all have the same goal, which is good detection dogs. Yeah. So. Thank you so much for being on here.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah. And
1: I'm sure you'll be back here in Las Vegas yeah. before too long, unless Wesley gets jealous yeah. and says, <laughs> What is this? She gets to do all this fun stuff. And so, uh, but so if, if people want to reach out to you, you're on social media, correct? I
2: am, yeah, I'm on social media. Yeah.
1: So your name's on there. And what I will do is put in the show notes uh, on the podcast how to get a hold of you. Uh, we'll put your email down there if you want, and people can maybe email, ask you questions. Yeah, yeah, about your journey and how you got to where you're at more than what we could cover on here. Does good. that sound good?
2: Yeah,
1: very good. Awesome. All right. Again, thank you very much for being on the show. And maybe on the next visit we'll do another follow-up podcast with you. Very
2: okay, good.
1: All right, awesome. Thank you.
2: See ya.